Welcome to the Mean Lady Talking Podcast, the tough-talking, advice-giving show by the not-really-mean, mean lady, Susan J. Elliott. Good day, everybody. This is Susan Elliott, host of the Mean Lady Talking Podcast, and welcome to episode 91. We're closing in on 100. Okay, I have a few things to talk about, and I am, as promised, I'm going to pause the Patreon account in January for the meanies, and I'm going to push out a bunch of meanie-only episodes. And one of the things that I'm working on, I read all of these different journals. You know, I'm a researcher lunatic, and and I have different keywords that I use at different journals or in a, in some of the databases where you can search all of the psychology journals. And one of the things that I'm going to be doing is talking about narcissism and attachment because I have both of those words as keywords and several articles came up together, narcissist and attachment issues. I was like, oh, bonus, bingo, yes. So I don't know if the meanies are going to enjoy it, but I am going to enjoy recording it. So if you have any ideas, you know, just let me know. But I am absolutely going to get a few more public episodes out there. Then I'm going to get some meanie-only bonuses out there. And then I'm going to take a break. And then season three is going to start. Now, one of the things that I haven't talked about is season one. I started the podcast when I was having trouble with videos. I just had this issue. We were having thunderstorms. It was the summer. My routers kept going down. Verizon kept sending me new routers. Everything was going wrong. And whenever I would be able to get online, I would be uploading videos and they would just crash. So I started the podcast as an alternative to the videos. And I spent four months researching what is a podcast, how to do a podcast. You know, that's what I do. And it's funny because I belong to groups of podcasters and somebody will come in and say, I want to start a podcast. Like, what do I need to do? And I'm like, really? What you need to do is get off this group and go research it. Because even with all that research, there was so much I didn't know. So much I didn't know. And I didn't know if anybody would listen. I wasn't quite sure what I was doing. And Sometimes when you're sitting alone in a room blathering, because most podcasts have guests and everything, and I want to have guests and I want to have guests of people that have done my boot camps and people that I know from the Facebook group and people who have read my book, people who just listen to the podcast, like I want you guys as guests in season three. But in season one, I'm just doing it by myself because as you guys know, I have lupus and I never know when I'm going to feel well. And I had just come off a horrendous year of not feeling well and being on chemo and thinking I was going to die and all this other stuff. But it's kind of weird sometimes like being in a room by yourself just blathering. So year one was like a trial year. And and I also didn't realize what the expense was going to be between the website and the equipment and different things. I was like, oh, I didn't realize this was going to cost me money, more money. And if you guys go on the gettingpassurebreakup.com website, you'll notice that there's no ads on there. I'm one of the few websites that have no ads. I'm going to have to change that because I just can't afford it. And I've been taking a bath on that website for years because of that. So I put up 
the Patreon account and I thought, if nobody supports the podcast, I'm going to have to end it. And and you guys stepped up and I thank you so much. I like really, really, really appreciate my meetings. It looks like they're keeping this podcast going. So if you appreciate the podcast and you like it, just for $2 a month, you could have it a couple of days early and have a meanie good time. So anyway, if you become a meanie, you would be on very good company. Like I always say, I love my meanies. So then the Patreon account took off. I was like, oh, okay. And I got a lot of feedback, great podcast, you know, blah, blah, blah. If you haven't rated the podcast, and I can't, I'm sorry to keep asking you guys to do things other than listen, but if you haven't rated the podcast on whatever platform you listen on, please do that. And I know that on Android, you can't do it, so you have to go on Stitcher or something like that to rate it. But if you could do that, that'd be fabulous. Anyway, so I didn't put the podcast in my rotation. And on a previous podcast, I said a little bit about goals and organizing and planning. And I'm going to say a little bit about that, and then we're going to go revisit some dysfunction junction stuff that happened. But I realized that I didn't really have the podcast in my goals and planning. And like I said, because I have lupus, before, because I have degenerate bone disease, because I have a few other issues going on, some days I wake up and I'm pinned to the bed. Like I can't move. It's, it's ugly. And other days I'm running around like a lunatic. And what happens is when I get that second wind... I overdo and overdo and overdo. So I've had to learn how to schedule taking a break, laying down in the middle of having a lot of energy, which is which is completely counterintuitive, completely counterintuitive. But I tell people this, and this works for whether you're physically, mentally, emotionally stunted in some way. If you start overdoing, you're going to go down. And that's what would happen to me. I'd be so excited that all this energy, I didn't, everything didn't hurt. I could run around, clean the house, do this and that. Usually clean the house is the first thing that I do. So I didn't have the podcast in the organizing and planning rotation. Because what I do is I now have things that I only do when I'm pinned to the bed. I have binders and binders and binders of research that I've done and articles I've printed out and things that I'm working on. And so on the days that I'm pinned to the bed, I pull up those binders and I just read and and I feel okay about things. I don't like the fact that I can't get up and clean and cook and do all this other stuff, but I'm okay with it. Then I have sort of like the mid-range day where it's like, I feel okay, but I could go down at any minute. And I have everything listed out. Now in the workbook, and I talked about this on a previous podcast, in the workbook, I have the thing about goals and have different areas. And I do that too. And even if I'm behind on like cleaning the house or doing my articles or writing or my boot camp, whatever it is, even if I'm behind on something that's really, really important and needs to be done, I have to take the time out to play, to do the things that are kind of hobbies, that are kind of fun, that are kind of enjoyable. And so I have some of those things, the ones that are not too physically challenging in sort of medium day schedule. And then I have the I'm high as a kite, not 
really high as a guy, but you know what I mean? Like I'm high on, yeah, I have energy and I feel great days. And so I run around the house, you know, and I, I even put breaks in there because if I don't, the next day I'm going to be pinned to the bed. I'm going to hate life. So I think that everything on your schedule should be planned out and you should have different days, days that I work, days that I have the kids, days that I do this, days that I do that. And depending on how I feel, that's when I pull out one of my calendars and say, okay, this is what I'm going to do today. And on sort of the fun goals, and I have that listed in the workbook. So on one of the fun goals, I have sort of reclaimed cooking. When I grew, when I was growing up, and I might have talked about this on a previous podcast, I don't know if I have or not. When I was growing up, I lived lived in a, a, a pretty mixed ethnic neighborhood and I used to go to everybody's house. And I was just fascinated with the way people cooked, especially from Italy. We were very, we we're a mixed ethnic neighborhood, but it was predominantly Italian. And we had ladies that were direct from Italy. We had ladies who were first generation Americans, some that were second generation American, and they all cooked different. They all co- cooked bolognese sauce differently. And watching them all, I came up with my own version of that. And I loved it. And my first husband, he stole all my recipes except that one. And the reason he didn't steal that one, not because he was Italian, but because he couldn't do it better. And he knew it. And he didn't quite know how I did it. And whenever I was making it, I would kind of try to make sure he wasn't around for part of it. Like I'd start it at some point where he didn't know. He couldn't recreate it. It was the only thing he wouldn't cook. He stole so many of my other recipes. That was the only thing he never stole. And I would think because... He's Italian, I'm not, and I cook this better than he does. So anyway, he used to make fun of me for not cooking. And his grandmother lived in on the third floor of a three-family house. We owned the middle floor. We lived on the middle floor. We owned the house. And we had this big, ga- big old gas range in the kitchen with six burners, a griddle, really, really cool stove and she would come down and she she smoked these 100 cigarettes you know, like a mile long and she used to light them on the stove and I used to wait for her like head to go up in flames but that's what she did every morning she'd come down and light a cigarette on the stove so my husband would joke around and say oh one day you should try using that big white cigarette lighter in the kitchen check it out see what it's all about So he lived in my head for a really long time. So over the years, I've gotten into kind of like a cooking groove. Like there there are things I want to cook, things I want to make, things that either I have made in the past and I'm really good at making or things I want to learn. And when I was married to Michael, he loved everything that I cooked. And this past November for our anniversary, I made clam chowder. And the last time I had it was when I made it for Michael. And I made it twice this year. And the second time I made it, I was like, oh my God, this is the best clam chowder I've ever made. And he would have loved it. I also did a white clam sauce because Michael had a hiatal hernia. He couldn't eat really the heavy red sauce. So he liked the, the white sauce. And then I started remembering different things that I've cooked over the years. And I went to my book and I pulled out a medium day one day and I had fun goal cooking, do something different. And it's not that I've never cooked this before, but I, it's not that I never cooked it before. I cooked it a few years ago and a few years before that. Usually once, once every two or three years I cook this, I just got a hankering for it. Uh, the Vietnamese soup pho. So I'm like, I'm going to cook pho. 
and fa is fa is a two day thing. The only other thing that's two days for me is bolognese sauce. I make that for two days. So fa is a two day, very labor intensive experience, but it's so worth it. So I'm making fa. This was probably right before Christmas. And I'm having a rip-roaring good time making this. And I'm going to put it in freezer bags. I'm going to have it. And it's great. And I bought some extra meat so I could use it in the future. And all the... Yeah, I was just like running around like a lunatic and just being happy as hell that I'm making pho. Like, I'm going to have pho. I'm going to have pho. And... And I think it's been two or three years since I made it. And as I'm making pho, I thought back to my childhood. My mother wouldn't let you leave the table until you ate all of your food. And of course, I was the rebellious child sitting at the table at 11 p.m., still staring at my meal. (laughs) I don't remember anybody else ever having to sit at the table. Just me. And she used to make this beef, what she called beef stew. Now, my parents grew up in the Depression, and they believed that you bought your meat at a butcher, not at a supermarket. And my father worked for the AMP, which is the New York area supermarket, and he would come home with a box of groceries. And I remember seeing him walking over the Bronx River Parkway because he worked on Westchester Avenue at the A&P. And he would, he, I would see him walking over the, the Bronx River Parkway with a big box on his shoulder, walking home with that. And never meet, never meet. My parents were like, you go to the butcher for me. My mother would make ribeye steak once every two weeks or something. And it wasn't for my father. My father was an egg lover. He could have had eggs morning, noon, and night. And he worked two and three jobs and my mother would make eggs when he got home. And so it wasn't because my father, but they were insisting on really good meat. It was just one of the things that they were just very sort of adamant about and one of the few things they agreed on. So I don't know why when my mother made this beef stew, the meat was horrible. Like it was gamey. It was tough. It was awful. And you might be thinking of beef stew with like a rich brown gravy. Well, she had this thin red gravy and I couldn't tell where the red was coming from and it freaked me out. And the potatoes were soft and mushy and horrible because they tasted like the thin red juice. And the carrots were mushy and there was no peas, no any other vegetable, just these mushy, mushy carrots. I was like in my 20s before I had had cooked carrots that had a crunch to them. I didn't even know you could cook carrots and still have them crunchy. My mother just pulverized the things. So I'd be sitting there looking at this plate of food and I'm a visual person. And I'd just be looking at it and gagging. And I had like six more hours to sit there and look at it. And the dogs would go in and out because our dining room, they went out the backyard through the dining room. There was a little vestibule and then they went out the back door and they would come around my chair begging and I'd be trying to get some food to them, but my mother be shooing them out in the backyard. So when they would come in, I'd sneak some food to them, but they didn't want the, the soggy potatoes and the carrots. So there I was trying to not only sneak 
food to the dogs, but I'm trying to negotiate with the dogs. Like, you're not getting the meat if you don't eat the potato. And I'm trying to, like, shove the potato into the meat. And it's just falling apart in my hand, falling on the floor, and they're looking at it like, I'm not touching that. <laughs> it's just like a complete mess. So finally, like 11 o'clock at night, my mother would look. It didn't matter if I had eaten one thing, 10 things, half of it, a quarter of it. At, by 11 o'clock, she knew I had to go to school the next day. By 11 o'clock, she'd say, okay, you ate enough. That's fine. But that was my punishment was sit there for six hours. So, yeah, I mean, this went on. In the wintertime, it went on every friggin' week. Every friggin' week, I had to sit there for six hours. And those stupid dogs wouldn't, like, eat the potatoes. And I was just, like, getting up from my chair, sliding on all the table, all the potatoes and carrots that I dropped to those idiots. So, so time goes on, and I'm a teenager, and I don't have to put up with this stuff anymore, and I'm doing most of the cooking. And, you know, that's a whole other shit show on, unto itself. But I told you guys that we were the rescue house. We rescued everything. And I told you about, like, the, the guy brought the guinea pig to our house. We didn't even know what it was. Like, what is this thing that had an X carved in his back, our little Cleo that went weep, weep, weep. And out of all the places, out of all the families in the block, he brings us to our house. He knew we were going to take it. You know, and she lived a, like a really long life doing basically nothing. Like her life was fabulous. She ate lettuce and looked out and had a grand old time. So we, and we rescued, like we found we found things. We saw a chicken with a broken leg on the Bronx River Parkway and we stopped the car and there's no shoulder on the Bronx River Parkway. And we're chasing this chicken down the road. It's like, how did the chicken cross the road? Because the crazy family was chasing it. But we caught it because it had a broken leg. And we put it in the car. Like, now we have a chicken with a broken leg. Yay for us. Like, what are we going to do with this thing? We did. We brought it home and we, we brought it to a vet and the vet gave us something to put in its food to sort of heal the, the leg. And then a few weeks later, the chicken died. And we were like, what happened? And we went to the vet. And we were like, we don't know what happened. And Like, we're all upset over this chicken. Like, we've only known it three weeks. But we, we were attached to it anyway. And it turns out, like, each of us was giving the chicken this stuff that was supposed to mend it. Like, it basically overdosed on the stuff. And we were like, okay, we shouldn't do that. So, and we got these two ducks. We, we had two ducks. I think I've talked about the ducks before. Mason and Dixon. They were attack ducks. They would, they would guard the perimeter of the house. And I would tell people, when you come in the gate, run for the front step. Run for the front step. Otherwise, you're going to be attacked by ducks. And they would go, what? I mean, yeah, you're going to be attacked by ducks. And it was true. It was true. And I remember when we had a hailstorm and this hail was like, the hail was like as big as golf balls. And I looked out the window and I saw the ducks and they were giving the sky a dirty look. Like they were giving the sky a dirty look. Like they were so angry about this hail that was bouncing on their head. They were, they were mean, menacing ducks. So we rescued absolutely. Absolutely everything and everyone. So when I'm about 17, we lived in this small house in Putnam County, about an hour from New York City. And it was small compared to a house in the Bronx. I hated how small it was. And there was four of us living there, my mother, my sister, my brother and me. And 
my brother always was finding the dogs, the cats, the ducks, the this, the that, the people. He brought an exchange student home. I was like, where do you find exchange students? Like, how does this happen? And the guy was weird. I mean, he was just a weird guy and he was there for a year and I was like, why do we have this weird guy living here? It was just my brother just brought people in. So I come home one night and there's three Vietnamese ladies sitting there and I'm like, hi. And it's like, we were sponsoring them from Vietnam because they had lived in Saigon and they had worked for American companies and they thought that maybe there was going to be, you know, genocide like there had been in Cambodia and they were they were fleeing and, you know, they they came to America. One had been married to American servicemen, but they were divorced now. The other two worked for American companies, so they had to get the hell out. Somehow they landed in my house. I was like, I leave in the morning and there's four people living in a house that's too small for four people. I come home. Now there's seven people living here. Oh, great. Like, do I have to give up my bed? I mean, what's going on here? But they were lovely, absolutely lovely individuals, absolutely darling, just wonderful. And one thing that they did was they cooked for us and my brother was my my younger brother he's the one that rescued everything was my younger brother my older brother was the one who was on the FDNY and went to Vietnam my younger one Vietnam was well over you know by the time he was even in high school I think so my younger brother was a bit of a drama addict no a lot of a drama addict and so this is an example of my brother my older brother had been in Vietnam and he brought home a Vietnam Vietnamese English dictionary and a, a South Vietnam flag. And of course, once South Vietnam fell, there was no more South Vietnam flag. So the two smaller ladies are sitting in, in the room and my brother approaches them and gives them the South Vietnamese flag. And the one just goes hysterical. Like she's just hysterical. She's like crying into the flag. And I'm like, I hope you're satisfied. And he was I mean that that was what that was the kind of stuff he lived for like oh my god isn't she isn't she heartbroken isn't that horrible I'm like you did that to her what the hell are you talking about so so there they are and two of them went to work for IBM and White Plains and the other one went to um, family friends in New Jersey eventually but while they were with us they would cook every night and when I was growing up, the only places I could eat out was either Italian or Chinese or American. You know, there was no real ethnic food. So they cooked fried rice one night. And I was like, wow, I, I like I had no idea you could make fried rice at home. And their fried rice was out of this world delicious. And they would make these other dishes that were like Vietnamese dishes. But they would they would tell us what it was in American terms and they would make words for it that we could understand, you know, it was called something else in Vietnam, but they would kind of describe it to us in in American. They would compare it to some American dish. So I come in one night and, and I asked her what she was making and she said beef stew. And I went, oh God. And I'm like, oh, these poor women, like, I don't want to be rude, but I'm not eating anybody's beef stew. Not doing it, not doing it, not doing it. So I'm like, oh, gotta go. I have a, uh, an appointment. I have a, I, I got cherry duty. You know, I gotta go. <laughs> like, bye. So I'm like, oh, I dodged the beef stew bullet. I don't know what she's making. It could be my mother's recipe. It could be something with pig's feet. I don't know. I'm out of there. So I come home the next night and we're still on the beef stew thing. 
And I'm like, I thought you were having this last night. And she says, no, it takes two days to cook. And I went, two days? And I'm thinking about my mother's pulverized potatoes and carrots. And I'm like, oh, my God, what is it like after two days? One day is enough. So, And there's like no getting out of this. So we sit down to eat this. And she gives us chopsticks and she gives us like all these vegetables that I've never seen before. And I wondered, as I've been making a lot of Asian food lately, where did they get this stuff from? And I think when they went to White Plains to interview at IBM, they found a Vietnamese market there and that's where they got it because I don't know how they got all of the different accoutrements that you need for pho. And that didn't even, and I've made pho several times before, and that didn't even strike me until I made it this time. I'm like, where the hell did they get these ingredients in 1978 or whatever it was? I was like, I was like, what? How, how did that happen? So we sit down to the pho and we have those little ladle spoons, you know, the little Asian ladle spoons. They had to have gone to an Asian market because now we have little ladle spoons that we didn't have the day before. So I eat this. I just take a sip of the broth and I'm like, oh my God, oh my God, this is this is like the best thing I've ever tasted. I couldn't stop eating it. I could not stop eating it. It was, and it was the first time I had hoisin sauce. There was hoisin sauce. There was sriracha. There was, if it wasn't sriracha, it was some kind of hot sauce. I'd never had hot sauce before. I never had hoisin sauce before. I remember, I never had bean sprouts before. A whole bunch of I never had before. I couldn't stop eating it and I couldn't stop raving about it. So we're in this tiny house and they cooked because that was sort of like the way they they earn their keep and then they would help us clean up and everything but we would tell them go rest you've been like cooking all day or whatever and so my mother and I were cleaning up the rest of the kitchen and she just lights into me lights into me she's like you sat at the table for years refusing to touch my beef stew but she makes this beef stew and you're all over it I knew you were faking all those years, blah, blah, blah. And she's screaming this at me in this little house. And I'm like, um, these ladies just spent two days cooking this meal, which was terrific. Their country has been demolished. Their homeland is gone. They labored over this meal. It it was good. It was nothing like your freaking beef stew. And they're in the next room. Like, they can hear all this. Do you want to traumatize them some more? Why don't you? Why don't you go in and give them a flag to cry into? I mean, let's just top this day off with the grip, with the best shit show we can think of. But of course, I didn't say any of that. I just looked at her like I was just like. <laughs> but this was the stuff that my mother freaking did. Instead of, and then like I have this whole other thing about how she made excuses for everybody. Always made excuses for everybody. I'm not going to talk about that on this podcast, but it's coming on some other one, except me. So at the time, I remember just not knowing what to say. And I was trying to tell her that even though they called it beef stew, it wasn't beef stew. Like it it wasn't. It's a beef soup, but it's not a beef stew. And she was just like out of her mind, just completely out of her mind. And so I'm making pho like right before Christmas and I'm I'm chopping up vegetables and I'm thinking about this and I'm like, I'm like, how did this even happen? Like, why? You know, it's just like I couldn't, I couldn't stop thinking about it. If I had sat down at the table 
and I didn't like their meal. If I sat there for six hours and tried to feed it to the dogs, I mean, the dogs weren't going to be eat bean sprouts, I'll tell you that much. I mean, what did she, like, like she would have killed me. She would have killed me if I would have been rude to them. She would have absolutely dis- destroyed me. And it didn't dawn on me until several years into therapy that there just absolutely was no winning. There was no winning. There was no right answer. And I went through that in my first marriage. I said, I tried to turn myself inside out out to get the approval that I never got from my mother. And the day that my therapist said to me, you need to stop trying to get approval from people who wouldn't give you approval in a million years. And I think I have that in the somewhere in the workbook, but it's true. There are so many people who just want to trip you up, who just want to find something wrong. It's what they live for. And I talk about how Michael said the night that I met him, I said to him, what do you want in life? He said, I just want to be happy. And he lived that. He walked that talk. It was who he was. I just want to be happy. He didn't sweat the small stuff. He didn't make a big deal out of nothing. He didn't try to, he wasn't finicky about anything, nothing, nothing. And I said, like, I used to get a, I used to get a roast beef sandwich at Hoboken, at Hoboken train station, a little deli at Hoboken train station. I used to eat half on the way home and give the other half to him when I got home. And he'd go, oh, thanks, hon. Thanks, hon. This is great. Thank you so much. I mean, that's who you want in your life, not people that are going, what are you doing? What giving me a half a sandwich? Think can't even get me a full sandwich? And eventually that's what I did. After two or three times of giving him my half sandwich, I I would get him his own sandwich and give him that and the half. And then it was just like over the moon. Thank you, hon. Oh, yeah, yeah, I'm going to take some of this to work tomorrow. I mean, like, it was like the greatest thing since the folded napkin. I was the greatest thing since the folded napkin. That's what you want. That's what you want in your life. You want people who care enough to not give a shit about everything else. You want people who care enough about you to not give a shit about everything else. And I don't mean like, do we have lights on? Is the electric bill paid? You know, but not to trip you up. You know, if I didn't pay the electric bill, Michael would have said, well, you might want to get on that before we're like having dinner in the dark. <laughs> we're eating roast beef in the dark. My first husband would have gone through the freaking roof. I told you to call the electric bill. Blah, 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 blah. And I talk about this at the 3 a.m. person. Like the 3 a.m. person is the one who says, you do this, I'll do that. You do this, I'll do that. Not, I told you to fix the roof. I told you I didn't want the dog. I told you I'm going to Sally's house. 3 a.m. person. The 3 a.m. person doesn't nitpick over foolish shit. And you can write that down in your standards and compatibility. The 3 a.m. person does not nitpick over shit. Over shit. And no matter what you say, no matter what you do, it's going to be wrong. You got to get rid of those people in your life. And if there are somebody in your life, like a coworker or a family member, you're going to have to corral them. You're going to have to set boundaries with them. But the first thing you have to do is recognize you're never going to win. You're never going to win. So stop trying. Go back to your life inventory. Go back to your parent inventory. Find out where this need for approval comes from. Look at the 
overdeveloped defense mechanisms in the workbook. It's not in either of the books. It's only in the workbook. I wanted it in Getting Past Your Breakup. We just didn't have room. And it didn't really go with getting back out there. It just didn't flow with the rest of the book. But it's in the workbook. Overdeveloped defense mechanisms. Need for approval is an overdeveloped defense mechanism. Go to the workbook. Go to the overdeveloped defense mechanisms and figure it out. And say, I'm not doing this anymore. I'm not doing this anymore. And then don't do it. Your happiness comes from inside you, but it also comes from what you allow in and out of your life. And you have to do it. You have to stop trying to please those who cannot and will not be pleased. Please yourself first, please everybody else second, and call it a day. And anybody who can't be pleased, the hell with them. The freaking hell with them. I spent 30 years trying to please people who could not be pleased over nothing, over absolutely freaking nothing. Don't do it. Life is too short and you don't want to waste a precious moment with people who don't appreciate you, who don't appreciate what you do, who don't appreciate the fact that you exist in their life. No. And it's not because you're not worthy, you're not viable, you're not this, you're not that. It's not any of that. It's about them. It's not about you. So keep those affirmations going. Keep the standards of compatibility inventory going. And you keep going. Okay, guys few more podcasts and I'm out of here until season three. I'm going to give more information about season three again on the next podcast. Thank you guys again so much. Take care, everybody. This is Nelly. Awesome.